Good. Let's pray. Hey, uh, gracious heavenly Father, uh, please, uh, please help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly this day. Uh, may your word come home to our hearts uh, with a clear uh, demonstration of the Spirit's power. Uh, please set our hearts and minds on things above and uh, move us uh, to enjoy our fullness in Christ all the more. Amen. Uh, so uh, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. Uh, last week, Paul taught us that uh, in Christ, we've been brought, he said, this is chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, we've been brought to overflowing spiritual fullness. Overflowing spiritual fullness. Uh, of course, often we don't feel like that, do we? Uh, we don't feel like our, our fullness in Christ is overflowing. If your fullness with, uh, in Christ was uh, to be uh, represented by a bucket, uh, I suspect that often it feels like it's got a whole bunch of holes in it, uh, that it's leaky, uh, that it's running low, or, or perhaps even that it's completely dry. Right, so how is it that we can keep maintaining and enjoying our fullness in Christ? What is it that, that causes holes in our buckets? That's what Paul's uh, really addressing in today's passage, and he has four things to say about that. The first, in verses 1 to 4, uh, is that we have to set our hearts and minds on things above. Uh, now, I'm not going to read those verses, but the key idea, if you look at that paragraph, verses 1 to 4, uh, the key idea is our union with Christ, our, our fellowship with Christ. So I'm just going to point to a few uh, parts of that. At the start of verse 3, uh, you can see there that Paul said that, says that, spiritually speaking, uh, we died with Christ. We're united with him, we died with him. Uh, our old uh, sinful self, our old life that was basically characterized by self-centeredness, right, where we were preoccupied with our desires and, and our plans and, and living for our glory, right, that sinful self, Paul says, has died with Christ. Uh, but then look in verse 1, Paul says also that we've been raised with Christ, right? raised to live a new life. Uh, a life that we're going to see is not characterized by self-centeredness, but by Christ-centeredness. And it's kind of preoccupied with, with living uh, for his glory, uh, for fulfilling his desires and his plans and purposes in his world. Uh, so we died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, uh, and now Paul says we're hidden with Christ. Look there in verse 1, Paul says that Christ is now hidden. Right? Christ is at the right hand of God. We can't see him with our eyes. Right? So in verse 3, if you look, our life, Paul says, is also hidden with Christ because we're in Christ. And finally, Paul says, one day everything that's hidden will be made known. Look in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Paul says, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, so one day Christ will return, he'll appear in all his glory, and everyone who is in Christ will also appear in all their glory. So the key idea in these four verses is our union with Christ, our fellowship with him, the fact that we are in him. But what do we do now? That's the question. What do we do now as we're waiting for Christ to appear in glory? Well, two things Paul says in these verses. The first in verse 1 uh, is that we're to set our hearts on things above. Uh, literally, it, it, that means to persistently seek, uh, to be someone who, who continually desires the things above, uh, heavenly things, uh, particularly Christ. In the context here, it's Christ who's already above, at the right hand of God. 
And so Paul's really, in summary, saying, seek Christ, seek who he is and what he's done. So if we want to enjoy the, the full, our fullness in Christ, the predominant focus of our lives has to be him, not ourselves. That, that's the kind of Copernican revolution that happens when you become a Christian. Our old self uh, that died with Christ was focused on ourselves, on our desires, our plans and our glory. But now we've been raised with Christ, Paul's saying, to live a new life where our hearts are set on him, on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his desires and plans, on his glory. The Christian, Paul says, is someone whose heart and mind are captured by Christ, are consumed with Christ. Which is why I can say what he says in verse 4. Look in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears. I, don't, I, I think we often hear people say this. My family, perhaps. My husband or wife. My children. My career. My sport. My, my studies. My favorite hobby. Those things are my life. They're my life. I was, I, I'm an NBA fan. Uh, I, I was uh, listening to an interview the other day, and the guy, the basketball's my life. Or when people say those things, when we say those things, uh, we're saying that these are the people or things that we just can't live without. We just wouldn't know how we could possibly survive if we didn't have this, that, or the other thing. They are our life. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, that's the kind of relationship you have with Jesus. Christ is your life. He's your only hope of life, of real spiritual life now, of eternal life with him forever. He is your life. And the more you understand that, the more you'll set your heart on him, Paul said. And verse 2, the more you'll set your mind on him. But on him, not on earthly things, Paul said. Uh, the mind here is not so much about kind of every specific thought that goes through your head. It is partly that, but it's about what is it that you're actually mindful of? What, what captivates your imagination? What do you give attention to? What consumes your thinking? Because it could be uh, that you are a Christian, but your mind is consumed by earthly things. Uh, for the most part, your, your mind is consumed by anxiety about money or career advancement or, or buying a new house or the next holiday or, or the next experience that you're going to have, the next gig you're going to go to, any number of things. right? And it's not that Paul's saying we shouldn't think about those things at all. He's just saying that our minds should not be dominated by those things. They shouldn't be the things that, that, that capture our imagination. Because this world is not our home. Our home is with Christ, Paul says. So what is it that consumes your thinking? What is it that you think about that when you've kind of got nothing to think about? Paul says if we want to enjoy our fullness with Christ, we've got to set our hearts and minds on him. So how do we do that? Three things. The first is that we have to pray. This is the work of the Spirit. We have to confess to God that we just cannot do this by ourselves. And we have to ask for help. Please, God, set my heart and mind on things above. Lift my gaze from the worries and concerns, the anxieties of this world. 
that I might be consumed with Christ. We have to pray. Uh, we have to read the Bible, right? I know praying and reading the Bible, that seems like kind of Christianity 101. Oh, it's just so basic, right? But believe it or not, the Bible is actually full of things above, It's kind of focused on that. It's actually focused on Christ, the one we're meant to be seeking. So the more your heart is full of the Bible, the more your heart and mind will be full of things above. So I wonder if you actually have a plan for reading the Bible. If you're you're a Christian, do you have a plan for reading the Bible? Anyway, you say, oh, that's so so much about duty. It's so structured. It's so legalistic. Yeah, but if you set your heart and mind on renovating the house or organizing a wedding or passing an exam, right, that doesn't happen by magic, does it? Oh, I'm just going to, my heart's set on this. No, your heart's set on it. You have a plan. You follow it through. You execute until it's done. Whether you feel like it or not, actually. Because your heart's set on it, right? If your heart and mind are set on things above, if you want that to happen, you have to pray, you have to have a plan for reading the Bible, and then I think you have to give. Giving is actually an incredibly practical way for us to loosen our grip on this world. You know, we've got to remember that that our home is with Christ, in God. Uh, We don't want to get too attached to the things of this world. We don't want our heart and mind to to be overly entangled in the things of this world. One of the good things to do is to give stuff away. Every now and then, give something away that is really precious to you. That'll help. It's one of the reasons why we have these giving cards. Loosen your grip on your time. I know your time's precious. My time's precious. But if your heart and mind are set on things above, why not get, I mean, every breath you take is a gift from God. Why not give some of your time to pursuing maturity in Christ? Join a gospel community. Loosen your grip on your time. It's not your time, it's a gift from God. Loosen your grip on your talents, right? All sorts of wonderful talents in our church. Right? All of them, gifts from God. Why not loosen your grip on them? Right? Use them for, for the work of the kingdom, not just for the work of your kingdom. And loosen your grip on, on your treasure, perhaps. Right? Everything you have is a gift from God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so why not give some of your, uh, some of your money, your possessions, your house, your car, why not give it to, to, to the cause of Christ uh, in his world? So we can enjoy more and more of our fullness in Christ by setting our hearts and minds on things above. I think at least three things we can do uh, to help that happen are that we can pray about it, uh, we can read, uh, get God's word into our heart and mind, and we can give in ways that would loosen our grip on the things of this world. Uh, secondly, uh, we have to uh, can enjoy more of our fullness in Christ by putting off the old self, because some of those, uh, uh, some of those holes in our bucket are actually just, they're just sins that we need to repent of. In verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Uh, when uh, Gabby and I are going on a date, uh, typically, I, usually, uh, I clean myself up a bit. Right? That's what happens. I try to make time to have a shower. Uh, I don't always do that, but when I'm going on a date, lock in a shower, uh, have, a, have a shave, I put on a nice clothes, uh, probably a shirt like this. My kids know. Uh, Ada, every Sunday, she's like, oh, you've got your church shirt on. 
You say, I don't normally wear nice shirts like this, but uh, when I go to church and when I go on a date, uh, these shirts kind of come out, right? And why is that? Because I want to be ready when Gabby appears in all her glory, you see. That's that's the connection between verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, what's Paul said? He said, one day, soon, at any moment, Christ is going to appear in all his glory. Therefore, start cleaning yourself up. Start now. Be ready for his return. Right? And the way we clean ourselves up is by putting off sin. In fact, Paul says, put sin to death. Right? So last week we saw, uh, in chapter 2, we saw that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, uh, that Christ's death uh, broke the power of sins. Uh, but the question here is, well, what do we do with the ongoing presence of sin? Right? Well, we all sin. What should be our attitude to that sin? And Paul says, murder it. Right? Kill it. Put it to death. Don't entertain it, don't play with it, don't fantasize about it, kill it. That's the Christian approach to sin. Because we understand that sin is deadly. Sin separates us from God, the source of all life. So if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. That's how it works. It's sapping life out of you. So Paul lists four uh, categories of sin that we should put to death. It's not an exhaustive list. We can come up with all sorts of things. Don't look at it and go, well, I'm good because I'm not struggling with any of these. Like, uh, you're probably struggling with something else. Uh, but these are some common things. Right? The first category is all to do with sex. You can see sexual immorality there. Uh, that's the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography from. Uh, but it's not just pornography, right? This is really a, a word that covers any type of sexual activity uh, that would be forbidden by God's word. Uh, impurity is a bit broader. It's not just about activity. It's about f- uh, unclean, kind of uh, filthy hearts and minds. You know, they say, oh, that person's got a filthy mind. But right, last is sexual desires that are, that are just out of control. Uh, you might know a Song of Songs, it describes a sexual desire as being like a raging fire. Right now, we all know fire is a really wonderful thing if it's in the confines of a fireplace. Right? But if, it, if it's raging out of control, it's very destructive. Right? That's lust. It's out of control sexual desires. Which leads to what Paul calls evil desires here. Literally, it's over-desires, a kind of disordered desire. It's a desire for sexual pleasure that's so out of control that it's enslaving you. It's really become an addiction. And Paul says we have to put those kind of sexual desires and behaviours to death. Put Put them to death, he says, because they're just not fitting for someone whose heart and mind is set on things above. It's not fitting for someone whose very life is hidden in the presence of God in glory. You're united with Christ. How can you also do these things at the same time, Paul says? And then at the end of verse 5, Paul talks about greed. right? And the connection there is ungodly uh, sexuality. That's an out-of-control desire for someone's body. Uh, Greed is an out-of-control desire for someone's stuff. Their money, their their wealth or, or possessions or something. Right? And that's idolatry, Paul says, which it is. Right? It's fixing our hearts on created things, on stuff in this world, rather than on our glorious creator, right? on things above. So in verses 6 and 7, Paul says, put those things to death first because they're the kind of behaviours that make God angry. 
Well, we're not living life. We don't want to live lives that make God angry anymore. We want to live lives that please God. So put that put that stuff to death. Uh, and second, uh, because as Christians, uh, that's just not how we live anymore. You see that Paul said that, 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 that used to be. You used to live like that, but now you've been raised with Christ. Well, you've put off those kind of behaviours. Uh, in verse eight, Paul talks about uh, sinful attitudes. Look there in verse 8. But now uh, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, and malice. Uh, I found maybe a a picture of a volcano useful uh, to picture these three different attitudes. So anger is like the lava kind of bubbling away beneath the surface of the volcano. Uh, Rage is when it erupts. You know, it's really destructive. And malice is when it settles down. You know, the explosive anger's gone, uh, but you're just left with this kind of vicious, ongoing desire to do harm with other, harm towards others. Anger, rage, and malice. Paul says we've got to get rid of those attitudes. If, they, if we don't, they'll explode out of our mouths in all sorts of ugly speech. Look, slander. Right, poisonous words that are designed to destroy other people. Filthy language. It's an overflow of the filthy hearts and minds that we just spoke about. Lies. Words that destroy trust and unity in any relationship, that destroy relationships in the church. Which is where Paul's headed. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul says, get rid of these behaviours because they're just not fitting for us if we're a part of God's new humanity. Either the new people that God is creating in Christ. Look there in verse 9, uh, paraphrasing, get, get rid of these things since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have uh, put on the new self which is being renewed uh, in knowledge in the image of its creator. So you might remember, it would be useful to, to reread at some point, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Uh, in verses 18 to 23, Paul said that in Christ... God is creating a completely new creation. He's reconciling all things, putting back back the pieces uh, of a broken and rebellious world. And he says that new creation has started in the church. As God reorders our desires and our our relationships and our entire life so that together uh, we can be a new humanity in Christ who are being renewed in God's image to reflect his glory. If you've got the old humanity in Adam, uh, we've got a new humanity being created in Christ. And Paul says that we see that in the church. Verse 11, we see it in the church. Therefore, there shouldn't be any racial barriers in the church. Verse 11. Jews or Gentiles, right? But between people of any other racial background. No, all the barriers have been brought down. There shouldn't be religious barriers between circumcised and not, or between, I don't know, infant baptizers and not, between reformed and not. There shouldn't be cultural barriers between barbarian and Scythian, or progressives and conservatives, or middle class and working class. All those barriers have been brought down. There shouldn't be social barriers between slave and free, or families and singles. Or students and workers, or north of Bell Street and south of Bell Street, right? Right? There shouldn't be these kind of barriers. In Christ, God is creating a new creation, and we can give people a taste 
of that crea- uh, creation to the extent that we put off our old self and love one another across all these kind of barriers. Right? In Adam, people hang out with people who are like them and who they like. Right? In Christ, those barriers are overcome. So let's not just be like everyone else. Let's exhibit the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. Yeah, That's what Paul's saying to the Colossians. So how do we do all this? How do do we put sin uh, to death? Uh, Big question. I know we're all struggling with sin, and I'm going to give you the silver bullet. Not really, but really the main thing that we have to remember in any battle with sin is that these first two paragraphs of Colossians 3 go together. Right, the only way we'll be able to put sin to death uh, is if our hearts and minds are set on Christ, on things above. Right, so, uh, for example, uh, you put to death greed uh, not by resorting to self-discipline or, or having a financial budgeting plan or meeting with a financial advisor. Those are very good things. But in the end, uh, you put to death greed uh, by having your heart and mind increasingly captured by the generosity of Christ. That's how you become a generous person, not by your, all your own efforts, you see. Right? Or you put to death sexual immorality, and not by putting on internet filters and, and joining an accountability group. Those are great things to do. Uh, but but yeah, you put to death sexual immorality by having your heart and mind captured by Christ's goodness. Because right? if you've discovered Christ to, to be the spring of living water, the bread of life, the one who satisfies the deepest desires of your soul, then why would you look elsewhere? for satisfaction in some sexually immoral practice, you see. Or the way to put to death uh, sinful speech like lying or gossip, right? It's not through your own strength. It's by having your heart and mind uh, captured by the glory of Christ. Right? Because if you live in awe of Christ, if it's, if it's Christ's opinion that matters most to you, and then you'll be much less tempted to, to lie to gossip, to get the approval of others. That's, that's usually why we lie, isn't it? I've got to tell this lie, because if I don't, they'll reject me, you see. I've got to, I've got to resort to this kind of speech, because I've got to be the in crowd. I'm going to be excluded if I don't say this. right? But if you live in fear of Christ, in awe of him, heart and mind captured by his glory, then you're liberated from that kind of stuff in time. So that's the way that we put sin to death. Right, by having our, our hearts and minds uh, set on Christ, captivated uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, we're not only to put off things, uh, we're to put on things. Right? Look in verse 12. Uh, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Putting on our new self. Our new self as God's chosen people. Right? Paul's taking three names uh, that uh, were applied to Israel in the Old Testament. And he's applying them to this group of Gentile Christians in Colossae. He's saying, you're, you're God's chosen people. Right? He's saying uh, that by God's grace, uh, you're God's uh, holy people. Right? In Christ, you've been made holy. You're literally your saints. Uh, you've been set apart for this special relationship with God. And in this relationship, you're precious to God. You're dearly loved. You're, you're cherished by God. And as God's people, Paul says, they have to put on five different items of clothing. I got up to preach a little bit later than I thought today, so I've got, I'm trying to move fairly quickly. But I there's some good stuff here, so we might go a little bit past our normal finishing time. I don't want to cut out too much. Uh, so five items of clothing. Compassion. 
Uh, compassion uh, literally refers to the intestines. It's funny, it's a Greek word. It, it's, it's kind of saying uh, that you're feeling the pain and suffering of someone else in your guts. Right, so it's really commenting on the kind of relationships that we expect in the body of Christ, right? Where we're so connected that we don't keep one another at arm's, left, uh, at arm's length, right? When someone else is suffering in the body of Christ, we experience it deeply in our guts, and that moves us to treat them with compassion rather than being apathetic or, or just, yeah, just not caring, right? Put on compassion, Paul says, and kindness, uh, Jesus uses this word kindness. He says, my yoke is easy. Easy, right? His yoke is kind, he's saying. Right? Being in relationship with Jesus uh, is pleasant, not harsh. It's liberating, not burdensome. That's kindness. You know these kind of people. Whenever you're around them, you just feel like your burdens are being lifted. Physical burden, emotional burden. Right? They're just lifting your spirits. That's kindness doing all you can in word and deed to gently ease the burdens of a brother or sister in Christ. And there's humility. Uh, most people think uh, being humble is being down on yourself. I've got to hate myself. I'm so humble. No, no, no. Being humble is just forgetting about yourself. It's being able to not be consumed with yourself anymore. Right? Paul says in Philippians 2, humility is about looking to the interests of others, not your own. So the humble person, when they walk into church, is not uh, thinking about themselves but uh, so much, but they're, they're thinking about, who, who is it that I can sit next to? Who can I welcome? Who can I serve today? Who can I pray for? Who can I encourage? Right, they're not consumed with themselves. They've forgotten about themselves because they're on about other people. Right? That's the humble person. Put on humility, Paul says, uh, and put on gentleness. Uh, once again, gentleness is not, you know, the old translation would have been meekness. I would have said meekness means weakness. No, no, like, it doesn't mean that you've got to be a, a doormat. That's not the gentle person. Jesus uh, says he's gentle and humble in heart. If you've read the gospel, you've seen there are places where Jesus doesn't seem like a doormat, right? He lets people have it, right? So uh, the word gentleness actually uh, was used in Paul's day in the kind of secular world uh, to refer to, the, uh, refer to a kind of wild horse or donkey uh, that had been tamed by its master. Right? It had been broken and brought into, uh, I guess, a tame, a less wild state. It's been brought under control by its master. That, that's, that's a picture of gentleness. A Christian who's gentle is someone who's broken before God because of their sin. And out of that brokenness has emerged a whole new degree of control. They've been tamed, as it were. So when people sin against them, they're not harsh, they don't lash out. Uh, they treat people with gentleness. Right? Because they, they've got a real sense of how sinful they are. And fifth, patience. Yeah, When you become a Christian, you, you really understand how patient God has been with you, don't you? Uh, we're stubborn, we're proud, we're sinful, and yet God uh, is patient with us. He hangs in there with us. Right? So we're called to treat others with patience, to have a long fuse rather than a short fuse. Uh, so in verse 13 and, uh, verses 13 and 14, Paul gives some examples of how we'll relate to one another if we've put on these five different items of clothing. Uh, you could see them as kind of building, right? Bear with each other and forgive one another. Uh, um, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
So first, if we've put on our heavenly clothes, we'll bear with one another. Uh, there's a, a really uh, quite a funny uh, Irish rhyme. It goes like this. It says, uh, To live above with the saints I love. Oh, wouldn't that be glory? But to live below with the saints I know. Well, that's another story. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't that true? It's, it's hard work to put up with one another sometimes. Hard work to be a part of a church, a real community. Or you're coming up against other people's sin and, and weakness and foolishness. That's hard work. Right? But if we've put on our patience, our humility, our gentleness, all those things, we'll, we'll bear with one another. We'll hang in there. And in fact, we won't just bear with one another. We'll forgive one another, Paul says. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And for some of you, this is really real. Like it... If you, just put, if you put a whole bunch of broken sinners in the one community, we're going to hurt one another. Some of you have been hurt. You sit here today and you have been hurt by someone else in this church. Maybe you've moved on, maybe you haven't. But that is going to happen when you bring people together that are broken and sinful. So we have to pray that God would strengthen us to forgive one another as he has forgiven us. This is one of the great blessings of being a Christian. Where, where someone uh, is truly repentant of their sins, or I say truly repentant, we don't have to keep making them pay for their sins. I do pre-marriage counselling. Sometimes I'll say to a couple, I say, in your marriage, you're going to regularly have a choice. You're either going to choose, has Jesus paid for their sins, or am I going to make them pay for their sins? In marriage, we're always wanting to make the other person pay for their sins. Right, long past the point. Right, we've, got, we've got to work with this. Jesus has paid the price for their sins. Was Jesus' payment not sufficient? That you need to exact a bit more payment? No, we're free to forgive. I'm not saying that's simplistic, but I'm saying that the gospel does empower us to be able to forgive. And because the payment for forgiveness has been paid in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we can forgive one another, we might actually even be able to love one another. Verse 14. It's quite an interesting picture here. The picture is really of someone who's put on the, the whole heavenly outfit uh, of verse 12. Uh, but then they've kind of realised that it's all going to fall apart if they don't have a belt on. That's the picture. And so they, they put on love, right? That's the picture here. It's a belt that holds everything together, Paul says. And so we can enjoy our fullness in Christ by setting our hearts and minds on things above, by putting off our old self, by putting on our new self. And finally, these last verses, by seeking the fullness of Christ's peace, his word, and his glory. Three things. So, verse 15, the fullness of his peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called uh, to peace. Uh, so, peace here is not just... It's not just the absence of conflict. Oh, that is peace. But peace here is what the Old Testament would call... Uh, shalom, it's the, the idea of complete wholeness and life and, and, and blessing. Right? And the word rule there uh, is, uh, it, it has the sense of an umpire, the referee, or the, the decisive factor. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that as we live together as Christians, uh, the thing that we should have in our minds, the decisive factor, uh, should be 
does this decision or, or this comment or this SMS or this email or, or this action, does this promote the peace and health and well-being of the body of Christ? That should be the big question that rules in our minds. And if it does not do those things, we do not do it because we want to experience the fullness of Christ's peace. That's the first thing, the fullness of Christ's peace. Uh, Secondly, we want to enjoy the fullness of his word. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude uh, in your hearts. So Christ's message, his word, can dwell among us richly in all its fullness as we teach and admonish one another. You remember maybe in in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul said that his aim, his big purpose in his ministry was to present people mature in Christ, full in Christ, complete in Christ. And he said that he did that by teaching and admonishing. Right now in this context, he's saying, if you want the fullness of Christ's word amongst you, uh, you don't just depend on your leaders, but you have to teach and admonish one another. You have to remind one another of the key truths of the faith. You have to correct one another gently. Admonish one another uh, in light of those truths. And notice how Paul says we can do that. The second half of verse 16, how do we do this teaching and admonishing? Uh, It's by singing. Singing. Uh, Perhaps one way to think about this is that uh, maybe Paul knows that when you go home from church tonight, or any given week, uh, usually you're not thinking about a particular line from my sermon, uh, but a particular song that we've sung is stuck in your head. That's usually what happens, because music has a unique way of getting lodged in our hearts and minds. A really powerful thing, which is why it's really important that we're careful about the songs that we sing. Oh, we try to be really careful about it here at, at Darren Prezi. Well, we don't just sing songs that we like the sound of, but songs that will enable us to teach one another, teach one another the truths of the faith, correct one another, so that our hearts and minds can be set on things above, so we can enjoy the fullness of Christ's word. And verse 17, we pursue the fullness of Christ's glory. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving our thanks to God the Father through him. I do everything, Paul says. Every word or deed uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The name there, meaning uh, being consciously in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Everything done for his glory. And I'm coming to the end, so that's good timing, right? With the kids coming back. So we have verses 15, 16 and 17. Notice there, three times Paul says, be thankful with gratitude in your hearts. It's because Paul knows that as we set our hearts and minds on things above, as we put off the old self, as we put on uh, the new self, as we pursue the fullness of Christ's peace and word and glory, uh, our buckets, right, our spiritual buckets will be so full that they'll be overflowing with thanks. Right? Like the memory verse that we did last week, Colossians 2, 6 and 7, overflowing with thanks. Why? Because we know that every blessing that we're enjoying in Christ is a gift from God, not something that we've earned a gift from God, so that we can enjoy our fullness in Christ. Let me pray. Then I don't know, are we going to sing or are we going to go straight to the Lord's Supper? We're going to sing. Let's pray. 
Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word. Uh, perhaps we come uh, this day uh, feeling like our spiritual buckets are leaking, uh, that it's running low, that we're feeling even bone dry spiritually. Uh, help us to think about these four main things uh, that Paul's uh, brought to us in Colossians 3. Please, Father, by the power of your Spirit, set our hearts and minds afresh on things above, on our Lord Jesus Christ, on who he is and, and what he's done for us. Please, Father, uh, help us to, as we set our hearts and minds on Christ and, and, and his appearing, help us to put to death things that just aren't fitting for his glorious presence. Help us to put on the new self that is fitting for his glorious presence. And may our church increasingly, Father, uh, be full of the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and be full of, of uh, attitudes and behaviours that bring glory uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.